Well, hi everybody and welcome. It's Toby Miller here in the Cultural Studies Podcast. I'm in Cafe Kick in Exmouth Market and I'm with a friend of mine named Mike Bromley. Michael is a very distinguished professor of journalism and he's a recently ennobled, as it were, professor of journalism here in London at City University where he's returned after many years in Australia. So what's it like coming back to a place where you worked before? Well, it's it's strange. Uh, and I guess anybody who's moved around and then has gone back to somewhere always finds it a little more disconcerting and it's never quite the way you think it is. You have this nostalgia, so you think when you're away you think you miss certain things and then when you get back you realise the things you miss probably weren't there in the first place. Or drove you away. (laughs) Possibly. Possibly. But I found uh, travelling around and living in other cultures and engaging with other cultures really fascinating, enlivening, and I would not have been without it. And uh, my wife, who's American, often says, what would have happened if you'd have just stayed in Lancashire because I was born in Lancashire in the northwest of England? Uh, and I can't imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you're glad you've done all these different things. I mean, yeah. London must have been quite a move for you. Was that where you first moved when you were, when you were a journalist? I guess. No, I first moved to Manchester uh, and then to London, uh, and also I spent some time in Belfast and some time in Cardiff in Wales. Oh. Uh, but it's also been a, a, a social move for me too, because my parents were working class and I was brought up, uh, and well I initially lived in a house that didn't have a bathroom inside, yeah. my father had to build one over the stairs, uh, he had to make room there to build in a bathroom, and now uh, I've just bought a new house here, it's not a very fancy house, but it has five lavatories, and I can't believe it, when I, when I, when I was a kid we didn't have one inside the house, it was, a, it was in the yard. I, uh, I actually was talking to, reminiscing today about running to the uh, the toilet in the rain with somebody and remembering that. Although I did that actually, thank you very much, in Western Australia. Yeah. In fact. Yeah. And it would have been the same in Brisbane, in uh, Queensland, in Australia at the same time. Yeah. So and in many parts of the southern states of the US would have been. Yeah. You know, pretty well, similar. very nice 19th century buildings where. This was an outhouse that only later got plumbing and never moved inside. So, yes, I think five is possibly up there in terms of limits. How many of you are living in this place? (laughs) Two people. (laughs) But we hope to have lots of guests (laughs) from all over the world. This is like buying friends for your teenage children by putting in a swimming pool. (laughs) Come to to London. You'll have three bathrooms to choose from. No, that's wonderful. But it also means that, uh, and I was saying to a colleague of mine about a year ago that uh, when people, if I do a seminar with students, uh, particularly research grad students, and they're citing all these authorities whose work I've read, and some of them I know, and I've always admired their work, and then they say, and Dr. Bromley, and I think, who for nanosecond, who is that guy? It can't be me. I still have that sense of yeah. lack of reality. Of, uh, so is it a matter of question of when you'll wake up or when they'll wake up? Well, Everybody wakes up. Yeah, <laughs> WC Fields supposedly kept bank accounts all over the place because he thought that 
his his life as a kind of thespian and as a comedian, as a vaudeville artist, was so precarious. Somebody would one day stand up and shout, "Get off your rubbish!" And then you'd at least be able to go and find some money and be able to get home. Uh, we'll get and drunk. I still feel, well, <laughs> <laughs> I still feel a bit uh, a bit like that. Yeah. yeah. So you're you're growing up. In the north of England, and then did you? When did you start getting interested in journalism? I was probably quite young. I was probably about fourteen or fifteen, mm-hmm. and I, I've, I've tried to think about it retrospectively. And I think it was because there was at that time, because of what was happening in England with education and social mobility, there was a raft of occupations that you could do without going to university. They were like the first step beyond uh, leaving school at, at 15 and going into an apprenticeship or into industry because it was a heavily industrialised part of the world that I came from with lots of coal mining too in those days. Uh, and it was being uh, working in a bank, uh, doing the non-graduate uh, legal training, becoming a solicitor's clerk and then working your way up that way, well, working in the, going into the police. And journalism was one of those. It's a white collar. You could be earning a wage immediately. Yeah. But not work outside. Yes, it was. My mother would have called it an office job. An office job, yes. yeah, sure. Whereas everybody else in my family had quite like jobs. Like yeah, yeah. Uh, and that was that was the history of my family. Everybody yeah. had always had blue collar jobs. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's thinking about how you can get there's a wonderful moment uh, in Nobody's Fool when one of the guys who works with Paul Newman doing odd jobs for Jessica Tandy and others said, I thought you said we would be working inside because they're in the northeast of the United States in midwinter doing construction and odds and sods. The plaintive look on his face. And then he's just pushed aside, just shut up and like it. But I love, I've always loved that expression ever since. I thought we could work inside. So his inside job is just as good as my mother's notion of an office job. Yeah. Yeah, or just protection from the elements. Yeah. You know, as much as yeah. Anything. And my father worked on, was an electrician. He worked on building sites. He worked down coal mines. So he was really exposed to all that kind of thing. And he he always wanted to work inside. He was much happier working in a factory where he would be inside. Sure. And he had he had a trade. Yes. In order to have become a Sparky. Yeah. So, what what was possible for a working class lad? in terms of journalism in those days. I'm talking about the early 60s, mid 60s? Yeah, mid 60s, 1965. I often think about that. I think it was social mobility upwards, uh, but there was also a social mobility downwards too. Uh, if you look at uh, recollections of journalism in that period, uh, it's often presented, and somewhat accurately, as a kind of melange of, of people, working class lads, mainly, still lads, I think it was still very much a working their way up, and that sort of slightly failed middle class boys working their way down. <laughs> yeah. and, and I guess somewhere in the back of my mind that kind of appealed to me that, that sort of, it's not true egalitarianism, but that sort of mixture. Uh, and the Daily Mirror was the classic. The Daily Mirror in that period was still the, the working class newspapers, the voice of the working class. And yet when you look at its journalistic stuff, loads of them were middle class, privately educated Oxbridge people who wore silk shirts and, and drank champagne and lived a kind of high life. And I think 
I came to say that bit of it attracted me as much as uh, what I think then journalism was also about giving people a voice. It wasn't quite Frarian and giving a voice to the voiceless, but it was there was certainly a sense in the late 50s, early 60s that there was an emerging working class voice. And we see it obviously in literature, we see it in Ned Thompson's work on history from below. And I think we also see it if you go back to newspapers in Britain at that time, you'll see it emerging in newspapers too. Music more authentic would voice. Be a big music, I think I think journalism was also equivalent to music and I think I also had social mobility upwards and social mobility downwards uh, acting uh, comedy uh, photography you think of all the people in those sorts of areas they, they yeah. were the same kind of mix well, it's in a, a way. certain element of working class quasi affluence in the post-war period that means that young people become commodity targets in, in a general sense don't they, yeah. in the UK yeah. uh, in a way they hadn't been before yeah. And they also become potential agents of commodities rather than just targets as purchases, I yeah. think. And yeah. that's a key thing here and in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. And I think at that time we or I saw that as quite empowering, whether it was or not, that is another sure. question. But I certainly saw it like that. So if you imagine you come from a, a terraced house in a working class district with no inside laboratory, we had by then probably. Uh, and suddenly you, you've got this, people want. People are seeking you out to sell you things. Yeah. And, and uh, Chas Pritchard has written about that in the 19th century, when the, the beginning of kind of consumerism. That to be valued as a consumer, that you can actually directly spend your penny, and people want your penny, and will package the goods for you and guarantee its quality and make them attractive. Uh, has a certain seductive appeal, and I think we went through that again in the 60s. 60s yes. um, the Daily Mirror, by the way, for listeners, uh, remains the newspaper of the British Labour Party. Uh, it is one of the tabloids, which here means supposedly, although this isn't completely true, a sort of sensationalist style that focuses on sport and gossip and television and so on. In fact, all these newspapers focus also on finance, <laughs> uh, business and politics and science. But what they're famous for, how they get catalogued, is in terms of the class, background, cultural capital of their readers. And whilst it, I don't think you could call it, you couldn't call it the newspaper of the working class today, that's for sure, but you could say it is the closest to a mouthpiece of the traditional Labour, British Labour Party that we have in British newspapers. In the, in the 1960s, it, there was a particular moment in the history of the Daily Mirror when it, when it, it attempted to increase its gravitas. And I think that was aligned with a, a, a second surge in popularity of uh, Penguin Books as cheap. They'd originally been really popular in the 1930s, and by popular I mean uh, uh, socially popular. They were, they were read and bought across social categories, and it occurred again in the 60s, particularly the Penguin specials, the blue ones. Uh, and the mirror sort of seemed to think that this represented what later in 2003 its editor called the new seriousness. So I think they were trying to tap into that. The new seriousness? Yes. I hadn't heard yes. that expression. Was that, that Piers Morgan? That was Piers Morgan. Morgan that, who's now on CNN. Yeah. Yeah, when he was editor of the Mirror, in, in response to the invasion of Iraq, he, he uh, the, the Mirror opposed the invasion of Iraq and tried to move away. He said that uh, he said that the uh, 
fascination with celebrity and fluff and, and uh, superficial issues was uh, was all over and we really should be looking after 9-11 and into the invasion of Iraq, we should be looking at a serious Which was agenda. proven by the Daily Mirror posting fabricated photographs of the British military. <laughs> Well, it didn't last very long. I think it lasted. I think it lasted for a little while after 9/11, and then again a little while in 2003. But then it was abandoned. But what you're saying is it it has resonances at earlier moments. Mm. And it's interesting you mentioned Penguin because Penguin was also important in a lot of working men's institutes, working libraries, and so on. Uh, I've a, I've a substantial collection of Penguin specials from that period, which I bought when Welsh miners' libraries were all sold off in the 19, probably in the late 60s, early 70s, and I would go around second-hand bookshops and buy them for 10 pence each. So everything from titles like Microbes of Men, which is clearly based on science, uh, through to uh, you know, what, what we've got at the post-war settlement, uh, and they used to do a series of, around elections, uh, the Labour case, the Liberal case, the Conservative case. Mm. So they were all fasc fascinating volumes. You know. Let's talk about newspapers for a bit, maybe we'll go back to your dark or perhaps enlightened past later. Uh, we're in a moment of uh, seeming consolidation uh, where the traditional British method, which is to have two newspapers in each stable, you have a special Sunday paper that uh, is the affine of the Monday to Saturday paper, is eroding. Uh, the news of the world no longer exists for complicated reasons, but even if there hadn't been the controversy, it would have ceased to exist in the pretty near future. The Sun, its sister, is now seven days a week. Um, there are signs that the Independent uh, has just done the same thing in the last week, I think I'm right in saying. There's no longer an Independent on Sunday in terms of a separate editorial team. Uh, it's owned by the people who own the Evening Standard, an evening paper which is consolidating people massively uh, across its titles. Uh, and there are signs that the Sunday Times and the Times may be the same. The Observer and the Guardian are very close to being the same now. Uh, does, does this index or incarnate a wider crisis, or is this just proper capitalist rationalization? What does this imply to you? Yeah, I don't think it's. I don't. I don't think it's crisis. I think it is creative destruction. So it is the way of capitalism. It, it has its kind of social underpinnings. Uh, we were talking about earlier about working class culture. The tradition of working class culture, at least in Britain, was weekly reading, not daily reading. People did not have the time to read on a daily basis. They couldn't afford it in terms of uh, straightforward cash. And so things like Police Gazette were, were, were tremendously popular and the Sunday newspaper. Uh, the News of the World was, as far as I know, the last survivor of a list which began in the 1840s, Lloyd's, uh, Reynolds News, uh, the city, there, were, there, was a, there was a range of them. And I think they've been eroded because we no longer have that kind of working class culture. People can do read daily or, or they want to access these things minute by minute. We now know a lot of people access what we would call the news at lunchtime at work through the computer system on their desktop. Uh, so unlike my father, lots of people who are now part of that wider popular culture don't work in coal mines or in factories or on building sites. They work 
they have office jobs. And, and there's also a seamless link between their office job and this quasi-recreational, quasi-public interest activity. Yeah, absolutely. So the spheres have kind of overlapped if they're not completely merged. Uh, and they would have been very separate, even in my father's day. Uh, he would buy the he would get the morning paper delivered through the letterbox. Not that, unlike many parts of Europe, there wasn't a subscription in the UK so much as just making a deal with the retailer that they would deliver it. I spent my time as a young lad delivering newspapers, uh, and then he would go to work and he would do his shift, and he would have no contact with the world outside of the workplace until he came home in the evening when he might pick up the evening newspaper and then listen to the radio perhaps <coughs> after dinner at night and that would be his contact with the outside world. Uh, now, as you say, we're seamlessly connected. Uh, I see people of the equivalent social stature uh, with their iPhones out on building sites. Now, I'm not saying they're all watching uh, BBC News, but at least they have that capability, which was not there for somebody like my father in, say, the 50s or the 60s. And in terms of these newspaper changes, it sounds as though you're being quite a Schumpeterian, that you're welcoming to you think there may be too many, and that something good may come out of these alterations, these transformations that we're experiencing. Yeah, I don't think there. Are, I don't think there can be too many voices out there, uh, and I'm I'm all for cacophony uh, and a surfeit of information and information overload. I think we just need to know how to manage it, and, and I'm probably not as good at managing it as my son is, and he's probably not as good as managing it. Somebody ten years younger than he is. I think we've it's an acquired <coughs> capability. Uh, but whether they ought to be newspapers or not, I, no, I don't really have much feeling that they ought to be newspapers because they're such fixed entities. They Not only are they physically atoms and fixed and rigid, but their structures tend to ossify and to be quite strict and rigid. And their ownerships are. So if, if all that activity migrates to the web and we get multiple voices in non-linear forms all kind of contributing, I think that is a positive thing. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, if I were, God forbid, Harry Evans, uh, the former editor of the Sunday Times, I would say thalidomide at this point, um, 50 years ago last year. Thalidomide was exposed by a Sunday Times Insight team under his charge. Uh, it was a drug that was given to pregnant women to minimize the impact of morning sickness and it led to horrendous consequences for their unborn children when those children were born in terms of great difficulties later in life. Uh, this was exposed by the Sunday Times and Harry Evans, when told, well, it's the end of newspapers or whatever, says uh, there will never be real investigation of that kind or of the Watergate kind, Washington Post, 12 years, 10 years late, unless there are these entities with large amounts of cash, large amounts of time, and serious research capacity. And that is not going to happen. It doesn't look likely to happen under the conditions of the I think the jury's out on that one. I wouldn't be as as, as uh, definite about it as Harry. Uh, what is what I think has happened, and what I'm working on at the moment, and I'm interested in, is is that because of this rather loose, I call it industrial talk or shop talk about 
business models of uh, mainstream legacy media, I've become quite interested in economic theory and how we might have systemic uh, explanations of what's happening. And, wh and one of the things I'm working on at the moment is the idea of uh, specialised complementary assets. And the argument, would go, or at least my argument, is that when the, dis the destructive technologies entered the media sphere, the media scape, the incumbents, the legacy media, had to had to think about what what they could mobilise defensively, but also proactively, uh, that was at their disposal in order to get hold of this technology and make it work for them to be crude about it and the economic theory would say it's specialized complementary assets they're complementary because they work with the new technologies and they're specialized because they are the kind of assets which only the incumbents would have because newcomers don't really have access to the well, we've heard all the talk the ft talks about his library of stories uh, other newspapers talk about their journalism and their journalists, their reputations, all that kind of stuff would be complementary, specialised complementary assets. And, I, and it seems to me that's exactly what the legacy media have done in response to these the destructive <coughs> technologies. They've said, and I, I think most people will pick this up from public discourse, we do the journalism. You can't replicate journalism out there on the web. And that's, I guess, what Harry's argument is. But I've just been looking at subdividing journalism, and I think one of the things that might have happened is that from within journalism, reporting has not been seen as a specialised complementary asset, but as a generic one. And therefore, what newspapers and legacy media have done is progressively given up on reporting. Mm -hmm. And it's that reporting which produced the Lidamide, Watergate, the Pentagon Papers, Me Lai, Abu Ghraib and so on and and I don't think it's a coincidence that Oh My News says every citizen is a reporter. Uh, I reports on CNN says everybody can be a reporter. This is that reporting, that eyewitnessing, uh, <coughs> analyzing documents and the Guardian gets lots of its readers to help it with that kind of data analysis, uh, talking to people. That kind of investment in that sort of journalism activity, I think, has been withdrawn by the legacy media and has now moved over onto the web. Whether it's done successfully or not, I think, is another question. But that shift, it seems to me, is irreversible. And that's so the reporting, the Watergates and so on, will have to come from the web because the traditional media are disinvesting in them. The other question I'm now beginning to ask is. Is that net disinvestment? Because it seems to me that the sorts of money paid for kiss and tell stories, for to agents, uh, to uh, columnists. I mean, Boris Johnson, the Lord Mayor of London, earns two hundred and fifty thousand pounds a year writing a column in a newspaper. You can employ many reporters for that. In fact, the latest figures say that the maximum regular salary for a reporter in a British newspaper is £60,000 a year and the mean is 25000 Now, you could employ 10 reporters for one Boris Johnson. So I don't think there's necessarily been a, a withdrawal of money from editorial, it's just shifted away from reporting into these other areas of journalism. And they will never produce Watergates because they never do any original reporting. Yes, these are columnists who write opinion pieces 
there. Normally, people who don't, in fact, do original research of the kind that you've got with the Insight team yeah. at Sunday Times, of the kind that resulted in the Pentagon Papers, Abu Ghraib, as you say. So, well, there are there agents who say, my client slept with this minister, do you want this story, or more likely a footballer? Almost <laughs> no. It's of interest to the public, but no public interest in that other sense. Or to, as we heard at the News of the World and, and, and other places, or in bribes to police officers, in illegal payments, in paying detectives to to access people's yeah. voicemails. I mean, this isn't original reporting. This is not at all. investigative reporting. Well, it's not reporting at all, no. I don't think. So, what about um, asking why this tendency is happening? Why is the Mayor of London? Paid a quarter of a million pounds to write a column for the Daily Tories. I think my argument would be because they can afford it, and someone on the web couldn't afford it. So it does give them. It is that specialised asset that they can mobilise, that they have that contact, and they can do it. Uh, I think the maybe the more pertinent question is why is it successful? Why do people appear to? keep buying the Daily Telegraph in order to read that column uh, and I'm not so sure that there's an answer to that, I'm not so sure there's an answer because I don't know why it might be continue to be popular, why people might think this is worth <coughs> reading, but I think we're also unsure about whether it is popular or not because, because the, the circulation figures of newspapers which we traditionally relied on to gauge at least their market popularity are now so blurred and fuzzy with the online presence um, and uh, with whether people actually read these things so it's, it's one thing to buy a copy of a newspaper and it's another thing to read it. Sure and I mean the Nielsen's are forever trying to find new ways of measuring these matters. In fact people have been doing this for a very long time, back in the 30s, there were attempts to do light tests on magazine pages to see how often they've been exposed to the sun, yeah. as part of indicating that for every purchaser there were potentially three or four or 45 readers in dentist offices or doctor's offices, wherever it may be. Um, what about other forms of journalism, uh, radio and television in particular? I think they're in much the same bind. Uh, but I suspect their transfer or their hybridization with online is easier because I guess for two reasons. The, the, the first is I think we live in a more or in a rediscovered visual culture. We kind of I think newspapers were one of the drivers which took us down the, the, the blind alley of thinking that we're in a culture of print and text and in fact the visual has now re-emerged and it was always we always lived in a visual culture uh, and I'm kind of I argue somewhat uh, I guess almost facetiously certainly with no real evidence that rather than the computer the most significant invention of the 20th century and I'm talking about the long 20th century was probably the camera only had more effect and instituted more change, and so, the, and so, for, especially for television, a moving or still image, it's it's, it's a, a, a pretty much a seamless move online, and in fact, high definition reproduction and, and being able to clone, so you're not you're not actually reproducing, you're just cloning things, just makes that much more vivid and calls it. 
grabs your attention more. I think one of the ways in which that's pretty obvious is that if you if you did any art history at university in uh, my time or in uh, sort of the 20th century, unless you went to a gallery, most of the stuff you saw was reproduced in books. Or on slides. Or on slides, yes. And it wasn't great. And then when you went to the gallery, you thought, well, it looks completely different. I think online you can capture much more accurately what, what something looks like. And of course you can do that not just for the flat, two planes, non-moving image in a gallery, but for environments, 360 degree views, you know, all that kind of thing is now all possible. But I also think there's a way in which, I'm not sure it's been really captured yet, in which having some sort of sound attached to that is really attractive so when i when i look at young people they they can they may be looking at this art virtual art gallery online but they'll have things in their ears and they're listening to something too and i think radio or sound is a lot to kind of learn from that and pick up from that and how we we put sound and vision together not in the way that we do traditionally moving image where we literally sync them but it allows people to put them together themselves so it's almost like saying well we'll have the, we'll go back to the old days when we didn't have the soundtrack on the movie on the film we show the film and then we'll have soundtracks that people can pick up on now clearly that doesn't make much sense although it may uh, with a with a narrative but in terms of putting other things together with, with image i think i think there's a lot of room there and so podcasting is really important in sound because it it, it takes that sound that sound element and says here you are this can be yours, you can use that. And if you want to look at pictures by Watto while listening to this podcast, hey, you can do it. Many more people in the United States listen to podcasts than ever, ever use yeah. Twitter. Yeah. Many, yeah. many, many more. Yes. And the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, which is the public service broadcaster in Australia, is actually funded directly by the state. They, don't, they abolished the licensing system some years ago. Uh, three, four years ago, discussed whether their Radio National, which is their serious radio channel, which actually reaches pretty much the whole of Australia, not much does in terms of media because it's, it's, it's huge expanse of space and thin, thin population, uh, whether they should just not broadcast at all and put everything on podcasts because the podcasts, it was argued, were far more popular than the broadcasts. That's interesting. In the United States, national public radio is forever growing in popularity. In Britain, there is no evidence of any diminution in radio listening. And a lot of people are hungry for either localism or for actual reportage, uh, which you do get on national public radio in the United States somewhat, not to the extent you should. But by contrast with any commercial provider, you actually get what I think you're referring to and I'm referring to when we talk about reporting. Uh, the same with the ABC in Australia. You get reporting in a way you don't from commercial radio. And uh, here, uh, there's no doubt it's the same. And uh, of course, there are many other systems in which this happens. But a lot of people predicted the demise of radio uh, with the web and with this obsession with the visual. Uh, it just there is absolutely no evidence. <coughs> 
But I guess in a kind of perverse way, I'd argue that radio is visual because you create the pictures in your head. Yes, of course. And, and it's that's not saying visual doesn't it's matter, it's just no. to say they don't have to be part of the medium yes. necessarily. Yes. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think it's how you do that that's really now important. Yes. Many more possibilities because that, that those pictures that you associate with the sounds that you're hearing can be literally in your head because I would tend to listen to the radio literally in my head. Or, or they can be uh, images, visual that you that you've sourced elsewhere. Yeah. And we don't. And I think the idea of putting them together for you as a kind of package, and they do use the term packaging, don't they, in broadcasting? Yeah. I think we should be unpackaging, getting rid of that. You package it the I way you want to package saying. it. Yeah. Now, what about what this means for the profession of teaching journalism, Michael? Because in in the old days, and still in some places, there was a thing called print journalism. And you did your degree in that, and that was all. And there was another thing called broadcast journalism, which was separate. In the United States, as you know, these were even some, sometimes still are separate departments with very little interaction. So here at City University, a very renowned journalism school, both in your previous time here and again today, how does that play out? And how should it play out? Well, I think the way it's playing out is that we're we're in transition I think uh, London we're in London and traditionally City University has either directly or indirectly uh, been a major supplier of young journalists into the media in London and that and that in many ways reflects the existing when City University's journalism department came into existence in 1976 there already was this huge concentration of media in London which which is which mirrors the concentration of population concentration of politics of power of money uh, because the U UK is a unitary uh, was I guess the evolution's changed that a little bit but it was a unitary state in which the capital had all the power it sucked all the power to it uh, it, I suppose one of the parallels would be Athens in Greece, where a huge proportion of the Greek population lives in the greater Athens area. And so, city city's journalism problem is very much tied to that, that media milieu, and it is changing very slowly. So when I come back, when I came back from Australia, I realised the idea of the newspaper. In fact, even the idea of Fleet Street, which is I thought was long gone, is still very relevant. And so the siloization of journalism continues in this London place, mm, mm. where it doesn't in other in other places. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we've not been able to move as rapidly to the kind of multi-cross media, cross-platform, multi-platform learning as perhaps other places could. And I suspect many places, and even when I think about Malaysia, Singapore, those kind of countries which have tech policies, government policies, where they will have just leapfrogged over this, this the state that uh, the UK is in. So we still do print, broadcasting, television, <laughs> and then online is kind of almost a separate entity, but they're beginning to come together, and I think, you asked where should they go, Yes, they should be seamlessly brought together. I think the issue is how do you how do you do that? Because it's a non-linear, non-progressive format, and yet universities with their 
terms and semesters and two always follows one and you start on a Monday and you finish on a Friday. They all tend to be very linear in their processes. So I think we're wrestling at the moment with how you chuck this kind of, this amorphous <coughs> thing into a, an institution that is determined by categories, mm -hmm. categories that have hierarchies and that where they are very, very linear. So the tradition, it's always irked me, was that journalism one is then followed by journalism two and journalism three, and you might get to advanced journalism. And, and it never, it, as a former practitioner, to me there is only journal, or there are only journalisms, and we might discover, discuss different journalisms, but there's not, there isn't that same progression, if you know what I mean. And yet we have to, we have to mark students, we have to grade them, we have to give them certificates, and they, yeah. they come through a, a step-by-step process. Yeah. And that's a real, and the, the online has just made that, you know, the digital has just made that even more complex. Yeah, yeah. Where do you start? And, and what about the idea of journalism being part of credential creep, uh, whereby what had been effectively trades become degrees, whereby people who, as practitioners and professors, had no degree, or maybe one degree, to the notion that they uh, should be more like conventional students and more like ac conventional academics. Clearly has been creep, and again, there's a social underpinning to that creep, and it's most transparent. And I discuss this with students when I get the opportunity in the after the GI Bill of Rights in the United States in the in the 46, 45, 46, 44, 44 passed okay. it, yeah. uh, which turned a lot of regular occupations into into professions. So, yeah, and it turned people who were not considered to be white. Hola. Into, into white, and it turned Jews who spoke Yiddish into Jews who spoke English. And it moved people from ghettos and going to a local school into Levitt houses in the suburbs. And the shopkeeper who sold you drugs then became a pharmacist, and the bookkeeper became an accountant. And it, after the Korean War, when they did the update, it created school guidance councils. <coughs> GIs who've come back, who've been in two wars, looking for something to do. The military paid for a lot of psychology. They knew about psychology, they studied it. Overnight, thousands and thousands of school guidance counselors were foisted upon unsuspecting high school students. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and I think Britain had its equivalent. I mean, not as not not as structured. Uh, the 1944 Education Act it probably have had a role to play. Certainly, the the expansion of the university sector, both informally with people re with men returning, in particular from the Second World War, who were then who yeah. would then go to university. Yeah. Uh, the British had a lot of trouble with with working class recruits into and conscripts in the Second World War in the army, in particular. They were they were very bold. They were, they, they, they were frustrated. They were a frustrated cohort in the 1930s that were brighter than the opportunities they had been given. And the army had to start the Army Education Corps to try to sort of uh, ameliorate the problem, which then, of course, meant that people came out brighter and more inclined to learn and all that kind of thing. I must thing. admit, I didn't know that, because these were children of a depression whose fathers had never had jobs and who themselves had never had jobs. Yeah. Oh, my, my father, for example, matriculated, which meant he passed all his old levels, which was the old sort of 
test at 616, uh, which then meant that you were eligible to go to university, and he had to go out and get a job. I mean, his family just never afford for him to stay on at school, let alone go to university. So, uh, and then in 63, the, I think it was the Robbins report recommended expansion of higher education. We get the glass wall universities, Sussex and Stirling and so on. <coughs> That's the British equivalent, I think. And then they've got to, what do you do with these new universities? And a really good example, I'm sorry, I'm jumping around historically here, is the University of Queensland in Australia, which was started in 1910, and it was meant to be a university for the people. In fact, the Premier of Queensland said the first university in the Commonwealth was established by a king, this one's established by the people, and it was meant to be a working bee. But the first thing that happened was they recruited all their faculty from Oxford and Cambridge, and it replicated the Oxbridge model. And we know that in the new universities in the systems, for example, Sussex didn't give PhDs, it gave DPhils, like Oxford. It, it taught philosophy, it had to have a philosophy department. Strathclyde University, which was one of the newer ones, was the first university in the UK not to have a philosophy department. So, there's, so again, so you've got this, this kind of an expanding population going into university, but the university, as it expands, still remains sort of ancient in its kind of structures. And do working class kids coming from terrace houses <coughs> with no bathrooms want to study philosophy? Well, of course, some do, thankfully. Hallelujah. But others want to do more practical things, more pragmatic things, yeah. if only because of peer pressure. So some of this credential creep is actually not about uh, a bunch of wankers in media studies trying to look relevant or a bunch of superannuated journalists trying to find a, a raison d'etre. It's actually a much longer tendency that one can identify over at least 50 years in the UK, or more like 80 years, yeah. or so. In fact. Yeah. Well, in fact, you could probably trace it back to the beginnings of the Technical University in Germany and the US in the 1880s, and yeah. that's when journalism first begins to appear in the university, is really in the well, States in that time. In the University of Queensland, didn't they start journalism in the 20s? Well, they had a program, but it was for journalists, so it didn't teach journalism. It actually it was a civilizing mission. It, it, the union felt that journalism was denigrated as an occupation, and that was largely because its its practitioners didn't know much about literature and the arts and philosophy and science. Yeah, well, that hasn't fucking changed much. <laughs> Sorry. Whoops. Bad Toby. Bad Toby. I just slapped myself twice in the face while uh, Mike Bromley laughed. Uh, so, so it wasn't about journalism, it was yeah. for journalists, and it really only became about journalism in the 70s. So it's sort of further education yeah. in a, yeah. within the profession. Finishing education. school. Finishing school. Polishing up. Interesting. Yeah. So, okay, uh, when students come to you and say, I want to be a journalist, do you say, you already are, go away? I do occasionally. In yeah. fact, we had an open evening uh, this week, a couple of days ago, and a, and a couple of people came to me and they were probably older than average, uh, and they experienced, and one had worked in policy for a long time, and I said, just go and do it. You'll be bored silly doing all this basic kind of fundamental stuff. You know you know how to find where the bodies are buried, which is a lot of what reporting's about. I'm sorry to be crude about it. Sure. Why don't you just go off and do something, or take a short course, which might help you, because sometimes people have a, a, a difficulty in organising their thoughts, and then putting them into film or sound or text and, but that doesn't that's not rocket science you can learn that pretty quickly it's mainly practice it's like riding a bike really 
uh, why would you bother coming and spending a year yeah. doing a postgraduate course? Get on with it. And we need people like that. The more people who kind of come in from that sort of background, the better. And I could see that person running a website or working on. There's one called Full Fact, which takes government statements and things and says, well, we'll actually look at the data and see whether what the minister or the opposition spokesman says is actually accurate. What about this question of professors of journalism themselves? Uh, you're somewhat unusual in that you come from the serried ranks uh, of journalists, but you have a PhD and you do conventional <coughs> It tends to be one or the other, very often. Uh, but you have a foot in each camp, I think it's fair to say. What about that distinction? What about that push for people to have PhDs and whoever they are, no matter how eminent they may be, not just to write their column in an online blog or a newspaper or both, but to write in the uh, journal that you uh, started uh, with a couple of other people, uh, Barbie Zelitzer and Howard Tumblr, journalism. Well, I think my view on that has always been pretty clear. I think it's really essential that we quote the title of one of Bobby's books, we take journalism seriously, so it's a suitable case for treatment. Um, and scholarly treatment is one very valid way of <coughs> treating journalism. So that's really, really important that we actually apply scholarly analysis, thinking, uh, we theorise journalism as uh, practice, as a kind of cultural artifact, in whatever way you want, want to. And I think that's really important. It's too, it is too, or it has been too embedded in social and cultural life and it's too much part of people's existence for it just to be ignored or just treated superficially. So I think that's really important. I don't have any problem with people teaching journalism as it were, Take for young people learning how to do journalism, but I think they also have to fill the gap between the theory and the practice and I hate that Cartesian theory and practice, but what happens in the middle? And that's really important. And when you look at things like medicine, the law, and, and even theology, they have this bit in the middle where they think where about medicine they, is an art. Yes, because it is about practice. As you yes. Say. Yeah. Uh, no, it's not always perfectly done, but it seems to me that journalism is a, is one of those areas where you would need that kind of middle bit. So, so in a in a crude moment, I talk to students about doing journalism. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with doing it. Thinking about journalism and then thinking while you're doing it, and sometimes thinking before you do it. So you ask, why the hell am I doing this? Not just because I can, but is there some purpose to it? And I think it's, and I try to, I try to draw an analogies quite a lot. And one is, if you think about medicine, uh, it used to be we used not to think at all about the notion of prolonging life. Then there was a big debate about the quality of that life you were prolonging and how would you, and it still is there. And it's that kind of debate, it seems to me, that we ought to be having. And it ought to be based on substantial evidence as well as just top of the head thinking. And so much of that discussion around journalism is just, I think, I believe, rather than or in my day. Yes. And we've got about a quarter of an hour left, okay. Mike, and I, I wondered if we could talk a little bit about. Uh, not these general questions, which are obviously interesting, but also your work more precisely. 
so that people who may not know all of it or may be encountering it now for the first time can find out where to go. So, you know, Bromley M, what should they be looking out for? This is, uh, I'm sorry to ask you to do a slight self-promotion. Um, think of it not as a job interview, hi, not as job interview, but just a way of sharing easily with people where they can read some of your research and ideas. Well, I would always work backwards. I, I, my first two degrees were in history, and, and someone, a very sort of eminent historian of that period, uh, attended a seminar that I was at, and someone asked him about his opinion. He was an Irish historian. It was a time when there was a lot of Irish revisionism in, revisionism in Irish history, mm -hmm. and the big, you know, historians and academics generally can fall out. And he was asked, you know, what where, yeah. <laughs> where do you stand on this? And he said, well, all I know is that whatever I think today, I'll probably think differently tomorrow. And I think that's, in many ways, the essence of scholarship and of academic work, is that we can constantly revise ourselves, because nothing we do is forever and nothing's 100% sure. And uh, we can produce a piece of work and think, oh, that's quite good, and then a second-year student completely demolishes half of the argument. Uh, and you take that on board. That is part of the way in which we build capacity to understand and to analyze and to build models or theories or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I'd always start at the end and look and do a sure. Google and see what's the latest thing, <laughs> where I'm at. But I'm interested, I guess, in, I'm interested in historicization and journalism. I think journalism hasn't really been his historicized. There's, there are histories of media, there are histories of newspapers. <coughs> But they, they tend to be, newspapers just stand in for great men, so they're dead white newspapers as it were. And the, the, how, we, how we locate the histories of journalists I think is really intriguing. And I've drawn a little bit, and I, and I tread warily here, on feminist theory about trying to resurrect her stories and the histories of women. Yes. And I think journalists have suffered a similar sort of fate, that they've been marginalized or collapsed under general histories of journalism, the practice, or of newspapers, or of great editors. And so, finding how do we historicize the journalists who just disappeared, the ordinary journalists, that just was a regular job. What do we know about uh, the 15 journalists currently working on the, I don't know, Bradford Evening Times as we speak? What history will they leave behind? Yeah. And we, 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 we don't see the, the documentary evidence that, most, that many people leave behind. So we see the newspaper, that Bradford Evening, whatever, yeah. we'll see that and we can go into the British newspaper library and, and read it. But where do we see the, the internal memos? Where do we pick up the union meeting minutes? Where do we pick up the discussions that they had in the pub or coffee shop afterwards or before? Uh, and all that disappears, it just evaporates. And so in some ways it's telling the history of things which left no trace. And I think that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things I'm working on at the moment is the, the news channel that never was. How do you tell a history of a news channel that never actually broadcast, but was all put together? So it had it had a designer, it had an ident, it had music, it had presenters, it had a production team, it had an editor and a director. All that was there, but it never actually went to air, so nobody ever captured anything, but it still has a history. This is like Bruno Latour's uh, Fast Train book. Uh, one of the things I find difficult about journalists uh, is that they don't like to talk about themselves. 
So I've done some podcasts with actually existing journalists, as it were, and they don't find themselves interesting. They don't see why anybody else would. Now, that's not to say that other people (coughs) have done podcasts with are full of themselves. It's just to say that there is a marked difference between journalists and people of every other profession that I've interviewed. Lawyers, artists, activists, academics, singers, they're prepared to talk about themselves and their life's work. Not necessarily in highly personal terms, but just, I did this, I did that, I think this. Journalists still seem so imbued with, I must not be the story. Why is that, do you think? I think they're trained into it. Uh, and they're trained into it because journalists don't perceive themselves as having a work, having an oeuvre. So it's, they don't they don't possess it in that in the nicest possible sense, although some people possess it in the nasty sense. So <laughs> a, 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 an actor will have a body of work that she's done. I appeared in these various places. I was in that red theatre. I've done these movies. Lawyers will have their cases. Uh, musicians clearly have their their music. Uh, journalists kind of give it up. Is it, it's it's is it a form of Marxist alienation that they feel detached from that they aren't the producers they're simply a cog in the wheel so like the like the person who stopped making stopped being a gunsmith and just made the barrels didn't feel and had any didn't didn't recognize the congealed labor that was in the finished gun I think maybe journalists don't recognize that congealed labor that's in the finished article and we do that in education because we do not adopt what I call the art school approach the fine art approach and getting journalist students to read journalism to know the traditions of journalism to think about where they position themselves in those traditions so we whereas a, a, when I was at the Queen, first went to the Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane, and in fact when I went for my interview for the job, I, the interview took place in a building next to the University Art Gallery, and it was the end of year show for the fine arts students, and I walked in there, and the first caption, the first label said, from a student, third year, fourth year student said, I was inspired by, by Angra's use of blue, and then I could see the whole of her work using and playing with that blue. We don't do that with journalists. We don't say, I was inspired by Kapuscinski's reportage. I was inspired by John Pilger's activism. I was inspired by Paul Foote's dedication to justice. We don't encourage it. So where would would journalists then cling on to anything? I was inspired by a bunch of incredible narcissists who used to work for Rupert Murdoch and be nice about him until they were fired and then (laughs) turned around and denounced him. Oh, sorry, I didn't say that. But I can think of three cases that we've almost mentioned, one of whom we've mentioned today, (coughs) of whom we haven't, of whom that could be said. But yes, I I think that's that's beautifully put. Uh, Funnily enough, my uh, first book has its cover is a detail from a postmodern take on art. One of his paintings, but so that's and of course, sorry, I'm just no, that student yeah. then mapped into the color theory in that period, and the sure. fact that blue was central to that notion of color. so a student from practice, from observing, yeah. from becoming passionate about getting yeah. involved yeah. in, yeah. ends up theorizing. And this is one of the interesting things, isn't it? That in fact, by having a skills base, you de-skill people yes. <laughs> because you, do. you don't historicize things. No. And I think you infantilize them as well. Yeah. 
do you? Or they become much more part of the cog. But on the other hand, they are encouraged to get a byline if they can, to move away from being stuck on the weather desk, right? And get their name up there. So at that level, yes. they're told, you matter and you need a body of all. But that's internal, I think. So that's that's uh, satisfying the news desk, as we would say in the UK. And, and I, when I, wherever I've been, and I've spoken to journalists, that is a prevalent uh, feeling. That is, it's it's internalised. So it's it's not like the lawyer saying, "Well, I did this case, that case, and the other case." It's like the lawyer saying, "Well, actually, I got promoted to associate uh, associate partner uh, because I kept the boss happy." And I think clearly in many occupations both go on and they may overlap. But in journalism, it's only the former that gets, gets, gets recognised. It sounds to me as though you'd like to see a little more pride. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. Which is interesting because so many people are critical of journalists for hubris. Right? For the yeah. sense of being delivered by the gods and allowed to say anything they want, do anything they want, go anywhere they want. But almost your concern that there isn't enough of a sense of the weight and the propulsion of history. Yeah. Is that right? Yes. I got that right? Yeah, yeah, I think you have. And I think yeah. I think the hubris comes from the media, not from journalists, because journalists just buy into that because that's part of their the mechanism of getting being deemed successful within media. And which brings us right back to what we were talking about at the beginning, which because the online space, because it's as it were independent, allows journalists to come forward and be journalists outside of those traditional media and so of course you'll get loads of really bad journalism but I'm absolutely convinced that you'll get lots and lots and lots of really excellent journalism which would not see the light of day if we'd had to go through that filter and so it's it's I think it's a two-pronged attack it's coming out from underneath the media and, and journalism particularly in the UK has just become totally subservient to media in fact most journalism schools actually teach a lot of media and most journalists, when you ask them to do research, will do research into everything but journalism. And it's often the, media, the newspaper, the TV, the radio. Uh, that's one. And then the other one is saying, well, we stand or fall by the quality of what we do. And we have a direct relationship with our user. We don't even know what we call people who consume journalism. There's certainly not an audience, just as a, an industrial construct clustered around a media, a medium or a media outlet. Uh, they're not consumers, I don't think. They're, they're not just the public. Uh, they are the people, maybe only in the People's Republic of China. What are they? Are they? And I tend to use the word users or accessors. They're people. Do we make our journalism accessible and meaningful to folks? And we can do that directly through digital formats. And then if we don't, then people will go, not interested. Journalists have to hang themselves out there. A former colleague of mine used to say, walk into town and hang up a shingle that says journalist and see what, see what happens. But journalists hide behind News of the World, Daily Mail, BBC. So I don't know if that's Hubris or... <laughs> well, I think it's very Janus-faced. I think it's very, it's multiply sided. And I love your idea of going out into the square and putting up a sign saying, journalist. People might think they'd suddenly started, they suddenly entered a zoo, but whatever. And perhaps in the 
endangered species segment. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> but there is that story of, uh, and I'll get, I might get this slightly wrong on the details. <laughs> Uh, somewhere in the southeast of England, I think it was in Kent, there was a proposal to drive a bypass or a main road or a highway through a community. And the community was just did not want this. And a couple of, I think, former journalists who lived in the community said, well, we can help you because we're good at communicating, we know the technologies yeah. and yeah. so on. And they, they helped this campaign and it was successful and it won. So there is a job for journalists to do. Well, on that very positive note, we've. I think what I've got gleaned from this is that journalism will not die, will proliferate. One question is what will happen to the media that encase so much of it. And another question is what will happen to reportage through all of this. But, Mike, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much for this. Thank you.